I'm Anna Wynn, and you're listening to Critical Literature Consumption, a podcast where I ask my guests, who are writers, poets, and scholars, about their reading and writing practices. Some topics I explore are, what is the author responding to? What are the possible tensions between author, text, and audience? Whose interpretations matter? What could be a miscitation? And how language is used and constructed? My guest today is Susan Nguyen, whose debut poetry collection, Dear Diaspora, was published by University of Nebraska Press in 2021 and won the Prairie Schooner Book Prize in Poetry. Her poetry is often interested in the body, how geography, history, and trauma leave markers, both visible and invisible. Her poems have been nominated for Best of the Net and a Pushcart Prize and have appeared or are forthcoming in the Rumpus, Tin House, Diagram, and elsewhere. She's an alum of the Tin House Winter and Summer Workshops and the Idlewild Writers Week. I like to begin by asking about the inclusion of a reference in your epigraph. You share a lovely quote from Teresa Hakyong Cha's dictate about fragments and wounds from the past and how to avoid repeating history. Did you read dictate as you wrote your poetry? And does a reference somehow connect to the title of your poetry collection? I did read dictate during my MFA program. So I was in a three-year program. I don't think I seriously started writing most of the poems from my collection until the very final year when I, I was like, oh, I got to get my my stuff together, you know, um, and produce some kind of thesis. So Dictate was one of the books I read. That was one of the books I wrote for my comps, my comp exams. Mm-hmm. Um, and I honestly, I don't remember how I found Dictate because it wasn't a book that was ever spoken about by any of my mm-hmm. professors or mentors. So I must have just been like specifically searching for seminal works by maybe Asian American authors or something. But that book, I don't know it when I read it and it's been a few years since I read it. I remember my mind was kind of blown. It opened a lot of doors for me just to kind of see, okay, a text doesn't have to be linear or the most straightforward. Right. And it was speaking a lot about language. I know I write a lot about language too, but it was speaking about language as this source or, or place of estrangement and displacement in a way that I think I hadn't come across yet. And I was like, wow, this is some of the stuff that I've been thinking a lot about that maybe I haven't been able to articulate or begin articulating yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the title of my collection, Dear Diaspora, doesn't come directly from this quote, but I think my collection has, you know, I think a lot to, to say thanks for to dictate, just in terms of like my own reading and understanding process as I was working on my book. But I wrote down and highlighted so many quotes when I was reading Dictate, and the epigraph was one of them that I kept coming back to. I think for me, because the quote that I include in the epigraph begins with, why why resurrect it all now? And I feel like that was something I kept asking myself in working on my collection because, you know, I was thinking about Vietnam, the Vietnam War, being a part of the Vietnamese diaspora, specifically in the U.S., right? And a big part of my writing process, too was trying to research and, and speaking to family members too mm-hmm. and just stuff that I hadn't done yet in my life which you know I was kind of surprised by I spent so long of my life not thinking about that or not asking questions so I think when I came across that quote it fits so well you know to ask mm-hmm. myself why I resurrect it all now and I think later in that quote in my Evercraft too it kind of begins to answer that for me because it goes to name it now so as not to repeat history and oblivion so I think for me a big part of writing this collection was to be able to name some of those past 
traumas or griefs um, mm-hmm. in my family and in, in the diaspora. So that way, you know, it doesn't turn into oblivion. It doesn't doesn't disappear. But the title of my collection, Dear Diaspora, that honestly, um, that was such a placeholder. It was never meant to be the title of my collection. I just have a few poems in the book um, that ended up being titled Letter to the Diaspora that begin with the line, Dear Diaspora. So mm-hmm. when I was turning in my thesis, I was like, okay, I need a title for this whole thing in order to submit it for my MFA program. And I was like, okay, Dear Diaspora, I'm just going to call it that for now so I can refer it to something versus you know my manuscript in progress. And then it just really stuck. I couldn't see it as anything mm-hmm. else and it, it fit. So the funny thing about Dictate is I only knew about it when I read Kathy Park Hong's memoir. And then since Kathy Park Hong's publication, I think a lot of people have been reviewing mm-hmm. Dictate. So it's like a lot of interest in her works again. Yeah. And I was so surprised that I just no one had ever mentioned it, right? Yeah, like it never come up I before. Know, but yeah. then, mm-hmm. yeah. But then I realized I had never really been in classes where Asian American writers or just Asian writers yeah. really heavily featured. Mm-hmm. And then it might have been my third year of MFA. I was actually taking an undergraduate class that was Asian American contemporary or just literature or something like that. Um, and mm-hmm. it was undergraduate class, but I was taking it um, past fail and, and meeting with the professor and, and doing a little bit of extra work. And Dictate wasn't one of the, the books, but I think because I was in that class, I was like, let me go try to find some other books that for some reason, maybe I just haven't come across yet, right? Mm-hmm. I was kind of in that mindset of just searching for for more authors that maybe were approaching some of the, the same topics or ideas that I was. Mm-hmm. And it was to the point where I was like, oh my gosh, after I read it, I should tell my professor who is, you know, in the Asian American Pacific Islander Studies program at ASU. And then I realized oh, she probably definitely knows about this book and this author. But for me, I was like, wow, how has no one talked about this book? No mm-hmm. one, you know, no one knows about it, which isn't necessarily true, but just in my life and the, the yeah. spheres I've been in, in the mm-hmm. classrooms I've been in, right? It just never, ever come up. So I actually like starting the conversation about Dictate because my next question is about how I read your poetry collection conceptually. So I mentioned to you that the collection read really prose-like, almost like a novel in poems is what I called it. Um, there are many references to the father's disappearance a miscarriage, and a character named Susie. And there are several poems, and you mentioned this, titled Dear Diaspora, Letters to Diaspora, and you Google Vietnam. When you wrote the poems and when you arranged them, did you consider telling your stories in a particular order and way? I love that you called it a novel and poems. <laughs> um, and I say that because when I was younger, I wanted to be a novelist because I pretty much only read fiction, and then I realized you know, prose was maybe not it. Not for me, (laughs) in the same way poetry was. And I remember before my book was published, one of my friends who is a fiction writer read through it and said, wow, like, this is a story. I know it's a poetry collection, but also it is a story, which was exciting to hear because I never really considered it in that way before. But I think at some point I realized I wrote a bunch of these prose poems that were all focused on on Susie. Susie's Mm -hmm. I, the protagonist in my book. For a while, I thought maybe the whole collection would just be these third person Susie poems. But then at some point, I think I kind of exhausted myself in in writing those poems. And I was writing those poems in the first place because I was having a hard time writing in first person about some of the the topics in my book. But after a certain point, I kind of got tired of writing these prose poems and realized (laughs) some of these first person poems that appear that, you know, maybe have this more removed or just 
older reflective voice or something that it could all belong in in the same collection. And it feels very much like a, a project book. I feel like I've seen writers use that term like a project book for a poetry collection versus, hey, I wrote a bunch of different, maybe distinct poems and now I'm gathering it together. But when I was writing and putting this together, I definitely thought, nope, this is all the world of, of Susie. And once I realized that, I feel like that helped me kind of see, okay, maybe there's some moments or spots in, in Susie's life or in her learning and understanding of the diaspora and just her own identity, right? Being Vietnamese American, there's some poems that maybe I need to add, you know, to kind of help fill that in. And maybe there's some that in the future, in later drafts um, of the, the collection, I can, I can kind of remove. But once I realized, okay, this is all the world of Susie, it gave me a little bit of freedom to realize, okay, just because maybe something happened you know, first chronologically in Susie's life, it doesn't mean it needs to appear first in the book, right? Yeah. It doesn't need to read mm-hmm. so linearly. It took me, I don't know, embarrassingly long time to realize that because, you know, I was reading all these books for people doing exciting things, but it was harder for me to then apply that to my own work. Mm-hmm. Maybe because I was so in the project to be able to see like, hey, you can mix it up and the reader can do a bit more work and things can be revealed later mm-hmm. in the collection, you know, um, which I think I, I figured out later, but honestly, ordering it was very hard. <laughs> I feel like every few months after I finished the first draft of the whole collection, I would look at it again and reorder it totally and think this is the one, like mm-hmm. this is finally it, you know? And I look at it again a few weeks later and be like, oh no, like it's not there yet. Let me reorder it again. And I did that for a really long time. And I probably would still be doing it, honestly, if if my collection hadn't been picked up and published. But yeah, it took a while for me to kind of get to where it is now in terms of, okay, just because Susie's father is missing, that doesn't necessarily need to be explicitly revealed in the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. That can kind of appear later in the book and that adds a little bit more depth and maybe complexity, I think, to Mm -hmm. the reading experience or so, I I hope. Whenever I interview poets for the podcast, I always tell them about my ignorance about poetry. With your collection, I really thought it was very novel-like because I thought you were hinting to so many of the same stories and characters. I thought, I'm, I must be like, maybe imagining something. So I kept rereading your <laughs> poetry. It's just a very nice way of thinking about the possibilities of genre, I think. So like, yeah. so like with dictate, a lot of people claim it to be too academic or too um, fragmented, but I thought the point of it was like an exercise in hybridity. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to start the conversation with Teresa's dictate and then think about how we can maybe, I mean, if it's about creative writing, it truly should be mm-hmm. like a, a creative experiment in words and form and structure. So that's all I have to say that I really enjoy your novel. Or <laughs> I, said, I said novel, I meant your poetry <laughs> collection. I'll take it either way. I appreciate that. And I'm glad that, I mean, I, when I was gathering these different poems and these pieces, it felt fragmented. And I can see it now as a collection in that there's cohesion, right? Because um, mm-hmm. it's all part of the same world, but for me, again, this is more of an exercise for me to expand my own like genre boundaries, you know, mm-hmm. and realize, okay, this is still a poetry collection, even if it for me at first it felt kind of fragmented. And I feel like I've seen some feedback or like reviews or comments about either people loving it or being like, oh, this kind of was difficult for me to get into as a result of it, which I think either way, either way is valid. Mm-hmm. Is it because poetry? people tend to read poetry as standalone poems? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think there's that too to it as well. And I feel like before I published the whole collection, when I was submitting 
just individual poems or packets of poems for publication. I feel like a lot of times the ones that are picked up and published were not necessarily the Susie poems, which mm-hmm. I feel like were very like part of the project, but some of the other first person poems that maybe you could read quote unquote standalone better. Mm-hmm. I feel like those are the ones that were picked up for publication um, at like various literary journals and things like mm-hmm. that. I'm always curious about that as if a text can actually exist on its own. That's always been a kind of... Mm-hmm controversially interesting idea to me <laughs> yeah and i know you said i think i forget the language you use that you're not as well versed in poetry but I, mm-hmm. I honestly still feel the same way <laughs> um as someone who writes and reads poetry i still find poetry honestly generally difficult it's just more that now i'm like okay take a breath like it's okay that's difficult like this is yeah. exciting to kind of dig into whereas before mm-hmm. i'd be like this is difficult we'll not read this <laughs> we'll not do the work <laughs> right right I want to explicitly talk about some poems. Um, I want to start with your first one, The Body is a Series of Questions, because I think it really sets the tone of, the, of your project. You begin that poem with a series of questions, which is very sensory-based, very phenomenological. Um, the poem, Questions I've Never Asked My Father, is arranged differently compared to the other. So there are a lot of questions in your poems, and I really like that. What do you think these questions signify? How does the body as a series of questions play into the themes of language, diaspora, grief, and placemaking? For that poem, that poem, I had the idea for the title first. So for some reason, the body as a series of questions, I came up that line was like, oh, that's great. Now I need to do something with that. Before, you know, I had the idea of the poem or I didn't know what it was going to become. I just had that line. And I think for me, when I wrote the poem, you know, I wasn't thinking of it as, okay, this is a poem for the collection. Most of these poems, except for maybe the Susie prose poems, like I wasn't necessarily writing them at first thinking, okay, this is all part of the, the collection. I wrote it and then I realized later on that, okay, actually it belongs, it can belong in the same collection. But for me, it was a really interesting, maybe, I don't want to say thought exercise, but since I came up with that line first, I thought it was interesting to think about the way that you know, our body carries a lot with it and other people's bodies do too that we can't see with the naked eye, whether it's memory, trauma, things that have happened to us or to our ancestors. And language is not always the best container to express some of that, you know? And I feel like that's a constant tension because then I am a writer and I write poetry and I use language as my main medium, right? But I was thinking about that and thinking, okay, like if we could read the body or something along those lines, what might the body tell us? And my way of maybe approaching that in this poem is not necessarily by the body outright mm-hmm. telling us, but thinking of it, about it as a series of questions. And even then, some of those answers are not, I don't know, maybe explicitly telling us in, in a way that you might want as a reader. I think there's a challenge to that as well, reading it. And when I first wrote the poem, I actually had it very much like a call and response or like interview format where I had Q for question, the question, a answer right and it wasn't until later that i actually broke it up and put all the questions at the beginning and all the responses at the end it took away kind of the original format of question and answer because i wanted it to be able to to stand alone and to have this kind of conversation without that original um container or format for it Mm -hmm. and i think it was one of my first poems at the time that felt way more maybe lyrical is, is a good way to put it and then i didn't know what to do with it and then i started actually writing more poems that were more along the the lyrical vein, which was super exciting. But the body's series of questions, I just had no idea where to place this poem. And then I realized, one, the beginning, you know, hopefully, like you said, setting kind of the tone for the book and some of what you might expect to see throughout the the collection. And for me, it also just felt nice because this is the first poem 
I've written in a really long time that feels lyrical and is doing a lot of work that I wasn't already doing in my writing. And when I say that, I mean, it's not giving all the answers. It's not filling in all the gaps for the reader. Mm -hmm. Um, Because before that, I was writing a lot of very narrative poems. I think that's why I kind of struggled to write in first person narrative, because then I felt like I need to say more, fill in all these gaps. Whether that's true or not, you know, I won't comment on, but it felt to me as a writer that I had to to say more and to say all of it. But mm-hmm. how do you do that when you don't have all the knowledge or all the memories to, to fill in those gaps? Mm-hmm. And when I placed it there, I was like, wait, this is doing a lot for for the, the entry into this collection. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I really hate saying I was trans and academic because it's not true, but I guess I am somewhere in academia. And when I read your first poem, it seemed like almost your like research questions and the poems didn't set out to answer the rest of the questions, but at least it gave us an idea mm-hmm. of what the themes you could be exploring are. And I found like those questions were in somewhat of a, not contrast or tension, but there's something about language being the other theme that the motivator throughout your poetry. When you said it originally was a question and answer kind of format, that made a lot of sense to me because when I first read it, my first impression was, so these questions are going to be answered. And it's not very clear cut like that. I don't think that was what you sought out to do was to answer the questions that you asked. But um, I did want to try to contrast the questions that you asked throughout the poems with this idea of language. So you said, you use the word like, it can't really contain, it's not a container. Language is difficult, especially with diasporic communities. I think it was actually in the first language, you write that the narrator's father states that their first language was named after tap holes, the way they move through water, a knife dissecting the stratosphere, a voice cutting quiet. What is that first language that you're identifying or claiming in the imagery? And and can we bring it up as more images of the body and then the sensorial aspects of that, that description that you were using? Yeah, I think throughout my the whole collection, I lean heavily into imagery and in the senses and thinking of the body in, in that way and actually considering the body in my writing before this collection I, I wrote about the body quite a bit in the mfa but i think a lot of it was more thinking of i'm trying to remember some of my past poems like what it means to be a woman what it for me you know menstruation all these things um and that, that's kind of where i was thinking more about the body and as i moved closer to writing poems for this collection i was kind of considering the body when it comes to ancestry and lineage and also inheritance. So inheritance of language, memory, past grievances, you know, um, displacement. I mean, all, all these things. I write about language a lot. It's something that I thought a lot about in the collection that I'm still, honestly, I'm still writing a lot about, <laughs> even now after the collection. And I think what I mentioned earlier of dictate and why that stood out so much to me was thinking of, okay, language as a place of displacement right Mm -hmm. so like there's physical displacement sure and that my family has experienced as a result of the vietnam war and and previous conflicts when it comes to language and i think for me that's very has been very personal because english is my primary language you know i feel like that's where i'm strongest my vietnamese language skills are not very strong unfortunately and i grew up speaking vietnamese but i feel like maybe because i very quickly spoke English in school or something, I feel like I lost a lot of that. So at some point during my grad school experience, I spent a few years taking Viet language classes just because I realized, okay, I don't know how to read or write Vietnamese. And then in that class, I actually realized my, 
actual speaking language skills are also very, I don't know, what is the right word? Like very basic, I guess, mm-hmm. you know? It couldn't really have more um, like conversation. Intense, yeah. Like, I, yeah, I feel like it was very functional, maybe. And oh, maybe okay. that kind of speaks to like growing up with my parents and our communication, mm-hmm. maybe being functional. I couldn't have more challenging conversations about, I don't know, politics, but I just, I didn't have the language for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a very interesting experience trying to learn that and be better at Vietnamese as an adult. I'm not very strong at languages or learning languages, and I never have been. But yeah, trying to learn it and then realizing that it was so difficult for me, honestly, to kind of learn Vietnamese and move beyond this basic conversational level. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I think I connected the idea of language as being connected to being Vietnamese because otherwise it's harder to communicate um, with Mm -hmm. my family, like my Mm -hmm. parents and the older generation in the U.S. And I feel like for me, not having those language skills there's a lot that can't be said or like can't be spoken between me and and my family because literally we are speaking different languages to try to express some of these harder things. And as a result, some questions aren't going to come up because I can't ask it. I literally don't know Mm -hmm. how. But as a part of writing this book and taking those language classes, I did interview my my family and my parents Mm -hmm. and I learned a lot more that that way. But to go back to to one of your, I think, first questions about the first language in that poem, I guess on a literal level started because in my Vietnamese language classes, mm-hmm. um, I think my professor was saying something, and maybe don't quote me on this because I don't remember the historical context. But I remember her telling us that I think maybe it was Vietnam's first written language system. The name for it was based on, I think it was like a Chinese script language or something mm-hmm. called tadpole script. And then she said, okay, tadpole script. And it's because if you look at the actual characters in that script, they look kind of like tadpoles, right? Like the top where things curves, the letter curves is kind of like the head of the tadpole. And then it kind of thins out, you know? Mm. Um, I don't even know if I did further research. I think I just got really excited by that image in my Mm -hmm. mind and then imagined a lot and went beyond probably what is historical or, or even factual. So that's where the inspiration for that poem started. But then in writing this poem, I kind of placed it you know, in the world of Susie. And I grounded it, I think, um, in the natural world and also in the body. Because in that poem, Susie and her father are standing in a creek Mm -hmm. trying to catch tadpoles. So for me, thinking of it in Susie's world, that first language, in a way, I think is like through the body, right? Mm -hmm. So kind of going back to your question about language being connected to the body and not necessarily like Vietnamese or English or whatever it is. Right. That was a very roundabout way, if you'd like to answer your question. No, no. I, I really like the idea of the template of asking questions and then what language could answer that question. Maybe neither, but then you have this physical space, the physical body that mm-hmm. maybe does more work than actual language. Yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, this whole collection, there's so many questions in it, and that's kind of the basis for, yeah. for my entry point into writing these poems was just having a lot of questions some of which I think are answered or maybe attempted to be in a way just through Susie and and showing her world and her movement through the world. And some of them, there may not really necessarily be answers, even though I'm tempting to write it out, you know? Yeah. I also share maybe your thoughts and ideas on this idea of you start asking your relatives, your surviving relatives questions, and you really want to know. And then how do you ask these questions when language kind of distances the actual... Like, I I don't even know if I consider myself fluent in Vietnamese, but I do call my mom every night. And I don't think I would be able to tell her, like, 
the book that I'm reading. So I guess in some sense, it's not fluent. So I understand all mm-hmm. these kind of tensions and the the uh, the dilemmas of trying to communicate. I told Wakey Wong this. I really don't like this idiom of like, I feel seen, but I felt a strong connection to your collection. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a wonderful way to put it. Because I feel like I fall into saying that phrase a lot. Like, oh, I feel seen and like, I love to feel see myself or my community like in yeah, art or in yeah. writing and stuff mm-hmm. but i love the way you put it well thank you for writing <laughs> the collection um so there's another poem about your body and how the body speaks if i say my body's grieving connects themes of the body questions and language i especially really like the exchanges so it's like rapid fire i love what you were doing here the exchanges between the narrator's parents and grandmother indicate rhetorical differences or how to differentiate between American and Vietnamese. And I found that every line is really provocative, especially when the mother is saying that the, their country no longer exists or the word nuk means both land and water. And then there's the grandmother says that all language is a metaphor. And then the mother is saying, don't translate me. So after all these kind of like um, elders back and forth, the narrator states they cannot separate their mouth from their body. So it's another return to the body as the one, the physical thing asking the questions. What are the fears and worries expressed by each of the family members? And um, maybe you already answered this, but if you could elaborate, this kind of fear of an unshared language, unshared histories. Yeah. If you enjoyed the poem, I do want to say it is after um, Athena Frexad's White Blight. Have you heard of that mm-hmm. before? Yeah, I actually okay, I have it with me. It, it's very, okay, you can see it. Yes, White Blight. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was reading that in a class and during my MFA, and most of the collection, it's, I think, maybe one long poem each page maybe is its own individual poem but almost every single page it's saying my mother said my brother said my father said someone said right and mm-hmm. i think there's maybe five or six different characters so i was after reading that that's kind of where i got the my father said my mother said for my poem which is mm-hmm. much much shorter and is dressing maybe something a little bit different in terms of vietnam i do want to say in this poem right we have a few different familial characters were all mm-hmm. saying my father said my mother said so for me it was kind of this idea of of translation one mm-hmm. i'm saying this in english whereas these family members are not saying this in english right mm-hmm. but also whether it's vietnamese or english like you said earlier it's still going to be an act of translation putting this down on the page um and in doing that like what what gets lost i think that's why there are some of those lines that you mentioned like don't translate me all of language is a metaphor say what you mean and then kind of the next step really is like, how do you say what you mean when mm-hmm. language is the best you have, right? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Or how can you go beyond language in, in that sense? And also, because these are all things that the speaker is saying, or like writing down that someone else has said and that they are mm-hmm. translating. So what is lost in translation? And then also how accurate or reliable is this? There is this fear of unshared language and unshared history, but if it's not spoken, or shared with language, mm-hmm. which may be the best thing we have at the moment, what happens to it? And mm-hmm. one of the answers is like, okay, it gets it gets lost. But I feel like there are different layers and levels of, of things getting lost, even when you are able to, to share something. So I think those are some of the wider fears and, and, and anxieties in this poem, but also I think led me to write 
like this collection in the first place, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I think with that last line, my American mouth cannot separate itself from my body. I think there is a lot of distance and separation. So mouth and language from the body, but also American, being American and the Americanness, yeah. right? And like the distance between that and my family. I noticed speaking about this Americanness, and was it the first letter to diaspora where I am like the American dream is struck out? I believe in the American dream, I think was, yeah, I believe in the American dream. Why did you strike it out? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so that was the first letter to the diaspora poem that appears in the book. And mm-hmm. it goes, a dear diaspora, I believe in the American dream, strike through. And then the very next line is, yeah. last night I had the mm-hmm. American dream. And really that, I was just trying to, to meditate on what exactly is the American dream. And I won't get into that. There's plenty out there. But for me, I was thinking more of, okay, I was born in the United States. My mm-hmm. family came here because of, you know, post-Vietnam War and also the potential idea that, okay, being in America, like it's this place of opportunity and good things are going to happen. So while, yes, that's true to some extent, like there are opportunities that are happening in the U.S. that maybe could not have happened if they had remained in America. Mm-hmm. Um I think I was also thinking and maybe pushing back against the idea that the quote-unquote American dream is the answer, right, yeah. to everything. Mm-hmm. Or that it really is, is it really even the dream? That was kind of what I was meditating on. And to say, I believe in the American dream doesn't really necessarily feel accurate. And I think mm-hmm. that's why I crossed it out. And I decided to keep it in there and cross it out to kind of show, okay, like maybe it started out as this belief for me slash through my character Susie, but that's not true and I decided to keep it to kind of show that versus just getting rid of the line and not having it exist in in the poem at all. Mm -hmm. I also want to talk about maybe the research aspects of some of your poems. Um, You talk about Google as a research method. So in addition to the poem title, You Google Vietnam, the boat people has snippets of research about lots of things, but in particular, the phrasing of FOB. Vietnamese Boat People Memorials, Obituaries, and Interviews. That particular poem is, is also really long, and I think it's almost 10 pages. What were your thoughts here? And when you were writing these specific research-based poems, what were you responding to? Yeah, I did a lot of, um, I guess, a lot of ways that I would consider research. And one of that was primary in, in speaking to my own parents and mm-hmm. in speaking to my aunts and uncles and other other family members, which is kind of more of an ongoing thing. But I collected a lot of notes from that. I did a lot of Googling. And as a result of Googling, I read a lot of old newspaper articles. Mm -hmm. And for me, I mean, I wasn't doing all that necessarily going in thinking, okay, I'm going to write a poem or multiple poems with this. It was mostly because I just didn't know. I was like, okay, I've heard the phrase fresh off the boat before growing up. I know the boat people, I, I know a little bit, you know, I know that's a way that People after the Vietnam War, and not just Vietnamese people, came to the U.S. and other countries. But I, I guess I didn't know much when it comes to historical context. Because um, mm. even, I feel like the one time I remember learning about the Vietnam War was, I think, in high school, AP U.S. history or something. I don't remember anything about it, like no, anything I learned. Um, right? <laughs> so I'm just like, okay, there's so much I don't know, right? Mm-hmm. And as I'm doing research, preparing to speak to my family members, and even as I'm speaking to them, and they're mentioning things, again, mostly in Vietnamese, and I'm like, okay, I need to go look this up and figure Mm -hmm. out more context. So I was doing a lot of that just for myself, just to have a better understanding and historical context, because I just didn't have it before. Mm -hmm. 
And it wasn't something I grew up hearing my family members speak about, which is also interesting because recently I spoke to another Vietnamese American author, poet, who said, oh, like growing up, my parents spoke to me about all of that. You know, like I learned so much and things I don't necessarily want to know about the war and aftermath. Whereas mm -hmm. for me, I feel like I didn't hear anything. And then I don't know if inspired is the right word, but that research inevitably as a poet led to me to me writing. And some of that research appears throughout the book in, in Susie's world. But mm -hmm. some of these things I wrote, let me go to the actual poem, like obituaries and things. I mm -hmm. wanted those to appear, but I didn't think that needed to be in Susie's world. You know, I didn't want to place mm -hmm. it as like, Susie read this or learned this in mm -hmm. the same way as I did in the other prose poems. I wanted it to kind of stand alone and be its own poem. And that's why it's right in the middle mm -hmm. of the collection. And I remember early on, the poem looked a little bit different too, because, you know, it starts if she Googles FOB. And I think it was some of it was like a multiple choice format, you know, of like, she finds this ABCD. And that kind of happened for quite a bit of the poem. And then one of my mentors was like, what if you try taking out of that because you're writing about something maybe more serious and thinking of form, like, is that working for the poem? Right. So I actually end up removing some of that multiple choice, which I think I did because I was just excited by the fact that I could do that in a poem. Mm -hmm. And then I realized maybe that is not this poem though. And I think for me, it was the way this poem happened was just because I was doing all this research and I didn't know how else to, I don't know if contain is the right mm -hmm. word because I don't think it is. But I wanted to write some of these experiences and show readers in this collection too, like, hey, this is some of that historical context, right? Because you're learning about Susie and where she is as a member of the diaspora in her life. But here's some of the context of like what happened to her family mm -hmm. or her ancestors or just her community. Because I think mm -hmm. it'd be very easy otherwise to read the book and be like, okay, Susie is a member of the diaspora. I don't necessarily know much about Vietnam or the Vietnam War or how she got there. I just know she's part of the diaspora. So I feel like that poem was necessary to write and include in the collection. Because as I mentioned, I feel like I didn't have that much historical context. Mm -hmm. And if I hadn't kind of done a bit more research or asking of my own family members that yeah. might still be true for me I think there's a sadness there because there'd be so much loss if I didn't ask and I still feel like right now I, I need to be asking more and continuing some of those those questions and, and interviews with my family but the pandemic has definitely made that more difficult um, yeah. in the past few years it's funny that you brought up AP English <laughs> or I'm sorry AP history AP history even if there was uh, what do you call it, like a week or so based on the Vietnam War, it'll be so American-centric. Yeah, that's probably right. why I don't remember anything because <laughs> I probably was like, oh, the Vietnam War, I'm Vietnamese. I should be like learning more about how my parents are here and I probably yeah. didn't at all because yeah. it was very much the U.S. government side of things and it did not stick at all. Even though I remember probably thinking, oh, oh but this should be more to me because right. this has impacted my family in some way, but I didn't learn it or read it in a way that, I don't know produce much understanding in me. Right. Susan, I want to ask you, did your parents look at your poetry collection when it was published or? Yeah, so they have a copy of the book. Actually, a lot of my older family members do. I'll speak for my parents, at least. I know they haven't read it. They're proud of me because they're like, wow, a book, it's amazing. Yeah. But I don't think they have the language skills mm -hmm. to fully read it and comprehend mm -hmm. it. I forget if it was my mom or my dad. It might have been my mom who said, oh, we have it. This is great. Maybe one day I'll be able to read it, basically. Mm -hmm. It exists and they have it, but they haven't truly, truly read it. Mm -hmm. It was very sweet, though. Like my first month that the book was out, I had a lot of virtual events and my mom went to every single one. My dad was like, she just has it up on her iPad as she's cooking dinner. And like, mom was 
like, yeah, I don't necessarily know what y'all are talking about, honestly, but mm-hmm. you're on Zoom. That's great, you know, right. which is super, mm-hmm. super sweet. They knew I did an MFA program. I don't know if they really knew what an MFA program was beyond a master's in English. Mm-hmm. So when I said I had a poetry book coming out, they were kind of, they were surprised because <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think they truly understood that my MFA was poetry specifically. Right. So mm-hmm. that's really sweet though. It was, yeah. I was shocked and surprised and made me cry (laughs) to hear that your book is pretty recent i wanted to ask if you were working on any new projects or if you have anything planned in the future yeah the book came out last september so it is pretty recent i think i saw a meme recently that was like oh i published a book and now i have to spend the next year talking about work that I've like emotionally moved on (laughs) from two years ago and i kind of relate to that (laughs) Mm -hmm. because yeah it came out last september but I mean, yeah, last poem for I, I wrote was, I don't know, a few years ago. And mm-hmm. when I was writing the book, I was so in it and the research and I was a, a student. So I had more more time or at least different time to really get involved and have these more frequent conversations about poetry and literature. And I was taking language classes in Vietnamese and Asian American literature classes. And now I have a full-time job and I, I haven't been doing it on the same level because that's life. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I I feel very, not very, but a little out of the world of this book. I'm so, so super happy and proud of it. And sometimes I'll read a poem and I'm like, oh, I wrote that poem. Great job. <laughs> you know, because I feel a little bit more removed from it because I'm not in it in the same way. So right now I, I am working on a second collection. I recently counted how many poems I had. And I was like, oh, this is actually more than I thought I had of poems that I feel good and proud of, you know, mm-hmm. maybe a third of a book potentially, you know, of things that I feel like could actually be publishable right now. Mm-hmm. And I have an idea for the title of the collection. I don't want to say it because of I don't course. want to, you yeah. know, it's one of those things where I'm like, I don't like to say something until it happens because mm-hmm. I, I'm not quite ready for that. And there's still a lot more work and poetry to be, to be done. I think I'm still very much trying to learn how to, I don't know, just be observant and kind of get back into, in a way, the same headspace that mm-hmm. I used to, to have as a student where I was reading and writing a lot more and thinking about language and literature a lot more than I am now. And it's really more like day-to-day survival and work yeah. and just being a person, you know, whereas before I wasn't really thinking about that. In addition to the second poetry collection, this is maybe a much longer term dream, but I've been very intrigued by the idea of writing nonfiction. I think that's just because I've been reading more nonfiction more than I than I usually do. So I'm really intrigued by that idea but recently i tried to write a a nonfiction essay and i was like okay you have a lot more work to do in terms of writing uh prose (laughs) and writing full full sentences and maybe um where you're where you are as a poet (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's exciting though so whenever you want to come back on and talk about your writing projects (laughs) please let's continue the conversation because um and i i want to reiterate again that dear diaspora really i don't know how many times i reread it but I don't know how to say this without being sappy, but it really moved me. And I felt like it was familiar, but I don't want to say that because I feel like that would universalize everyone's experiences. But it was a very extraordinary feeling reading and rereading your poetry collection. Oh, I'm, I'm so sentimental. So I'm like, yes, be sappy, be corny. I'm all about it. <laughs> it's really hard to write what you were trying to write about, which is what exactly do you want to ask your parents? And I think you already said this. Do you really want to know, you know? And I'm also at the age where I think I want to understand my parents, but I'm afraid to ask certain questions. And I think your poetry collection really dealt with that 
beautifully and delicately. Susan, thank you again so much for spending some of your time, your morning time, <laughs> to talk to me about your beautiful collection. And I hope we stay in touch and we'll talk more about your other writing projects. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and yes. um, for your kind words about, about the book. Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at anandroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time.